Welcome to Vilnius Talk on Finland's path to NATO membership. My guest is Professor Alexander Stop, who is the director of the School of Transnational Governance as of uh, May 1st, 2020. He has served as Prime Minister, Finance Minister, Foreign Minister, and also Trade and Europe Minister of Finland. He was also a member of the European Parliament and uh, also national parliament. He was the chairman of the Finnish National Coalition Party and also vice president of the European Investment Bank. Professor Stubb worked as an advisor at the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Helsinki and Brussels and in President Romano Prodi's team at the European Commission. He was also involved in the negotiation of the treaties of Amsterdam, Nice and Lisbon. Now this podcast is possible to do the kind cooperation with Bharat Varta, one of India's leading podcast producers on politics, policy, and society. Welcome to this uh, talk, uh, Professor Alexander Stop. It's a great pleasure having you here. Thanks. Nice to be here. Let's start with, of course, the most urgent uh, topic, and that is Russia's war against Ukraine. What is your assessment on the ongoing war and its impact on the European security architecture? What does the West need to do more efficiently, in your view, to further help Ukraine win the war? Well, to start off with, this is probably a much more prolonged war than we expected in the beginning. And for some of us, it was actually surprised that it took place at all. I thought the playbook of Putin was the same that he had in Georgia in 2008 and the Crimean Peninsula in 2014, that he would essentially, after four or five different steps, stop um, with a frozen conflict of swords and a declaration of uh, the recognition and independence of the area in question, so in, in this part, in Donetsk. So I was quite surprised when he went in um, on the 24th of uh, February. How has the security architecture changed? Well, now that we are into 80 plus days uh, in the war, I would say that it's changed permanently. It's a similar moment that we had with the end of the Cold War. Uh, and I think we're looking essentially at a divided Europe into two. On one side of the new Iron Curtain, you have uh, a, um, an, an isolated, aggressive, revisionist, imperialist, totalitarian Russia led by Vladimir Putin. And on the other side, you have 40 more or less democratic states who want to cooperate and abide by uh, international law. Um, how do we stop this war? I really don't know. And I struggle with that every day. I mean, I was chairman of the OSC and foreign minister in 2008 when we got a ceasefire in five days in, in Georgia together with Bernard Kushner. But I just don't see the end game on this. Can we do anything more? Not really. We have a full onslaught of sanctions, five ways from the European Union, more from the United States and from the UK, we're sending armaments, we're sending financial aid, we're helping out with, uh, with refugees. So, you know, apart from getting involved ourselves, I don't think there's that much more that we can do. Keep on sending those arms, I guess. It's a horrible thing to say if you look for peace, but that's the only reality we have on the ground. Well, in fact, uh, some argue, of course, that we could uh, even push forward uh, with uh, energy sanctions. Uh, obviously, uh, gas embargo right now looks uh, difficult in the short term, but uh, at least achieving an agreement on oil embargo would uh, certainly uh, put a lot of pressure on the war machine in Russia. Yeah, definitely. I mean... 
you know, I think this is the kind of a thing where it's a careful balance with uh, timing and 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 then also what you do. So, you know, I personally believe that at the end of the day, Russia will be fully isolated. So that means, you know, politically, economically, uh, financially, sports, culture, uh, transport, energy, you name it. And as far as energy is concerned, first we went for coal. Now the focus is on the oil embargo, which is held up a little bit because of um, Prime Minister Orban and Hungary. But that will eventually fall into place as well. And then the next step is, of course, a full gas embargo. For Finland, we don't need to do that because the Russians uh, will actually cut off our gas today or tomorrow. Uh, 100% of our gas comes from Russia, but (laughs) that's the bad news. But the good news is that it's only 5% of our energy portfolio. And it actually only goes to uh, industry. So we can switch that off immediately and go to alternative grids and sources. Now, this is not the luxury or the strategy that some European states have had. So it'll be a little bit more problematic for them. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, you know, full isolation is the only way to go about this. There, there's no other alternative. This is a binary situation. Now, Obviously, one of uh, the biggest miscalculations on the side of the Russian president was uh, to um, disseminate this uh, narrative, uh, which basically collapsed, uh, namely that uh, he launched a war against Ukraine uh, because of NATO expansion. Now, in fact, he has unleashed a new wave of uh, NATO enlargement. Uh, Sweden and Finland joined the European Union together in 1995, and now they are also seeking to join NATO together uh, in this historic moment for the alliance. Sweden has been neutral for more than 200 years, Finland since the end of the Second uh, um, World War. Can NATO, in your view, uh, integrate uh, the two countries quickly? uh, And what will be the most important steps uh, towards uh, NATO membership uh, from Finland's uh, perspective? Yeah, perhaps two observations on on this, and one is to tap on to what you started with. I actually don't believe that Putin attacked Ukraine because of NATO enlargement. It really had very little to do with it. This was an attack about values. You know, Putin hates liberal democracy. He hates freedom, human rights, and fundamental rights. He is a conservative authoritarian leader uh, who believes that he can basically uh, invade and annex anything that he wants, and the rest will follow. So that's why he did. The reason he attacked Ukraine was to Russify Ukraine. And of course, he achieved the exact opposite. He achieved the exact opposite in a lot of accounts. He wanted to split the European Union, never seen it more united. He wanted to drive a wedge into the transatlantic partnership. Well, it's back. Uh, he wanted to split NATO back with a new purpose, uh, not very far away from the one that it originally was founded on in 1949, mainly as a repellent at the time to the Soviet Union, now to Russia. And as a little bit of a bonus, uh, he ended up uh, basically forcing Finland and Sweden to join NATO. This would have never happened had he not attacked. So this, you know, the 31st and 32nd member state of NATO, the the ninth enlargement of NATO will be called Putin's enlargement because that's that's what it was. Uh, Then as far as our membership is concerned, First of all, a little correction there. Finland was neutral during the Cold War, but we dropped the doctrine immediately after the Cold War. So we were neutral out of necessity, uh, not our will, nor about ideology. 
that's why you know we joined the EU and uh, abided by the treaties, and that's why we went for a deep partnership with with NATO as as well. I mean, Sweden, you could argue, did the same thing, but be that be that as it may, um, you know, our membership sort of path towards an intent to join has been very quick. Remember that the war started on the 24th uh, and we're now less than three months into the war and Finland and Sweden have already basically said we're going in. Now, the procedure is not that complicated, but as we can see, there will be some political hurdles. One of them is Turkey. Um, I'm quite sort of cool about it. I'm, I'm sure that through dialogue and conversation, we'll, we'll find a way. Um, secondly, I am surprised at the moderate, slightly surprised at the, the moderate reaction of Russia. You know, when Vladimir Putin and, and Sergei Lavrov say that Finnish and Swedish NATO membership is not a security threat to, to Russia, then, then you sort of have to think, well, okay, uh, good, uh, because we expect them to say, but they understand that, you know, Finland and Sweden aren't joining NATO to attack uh, Russia. We just want to maximize our own security. And uh, in light of what happened in Ukraine, I, I think it's a very justified decision. Of course, I hasten to add, I've been in favor of Finnish NATO membership uh, since the early 1990s, for the better part of, of 30 years. But it, it certainly, you know, and, and just a final point. I was in a minority, 20% of the population, under 20% were in favor of NATO membership. Now we're talking 80% in favor. So, and, and that's in, you know, two and a half months. It's remarkable. Uh, and 188 votes in favor, eight against in Parliament. I mean, it's, it's North Korean figures right there. Well, in fact, uh, Ukraine was also striving for a NATO membership, not because it wanted to attack Russia, but in reality, as we saw, uh, Ukraine was uh, reinvaded by Russia because it was not NATO member. Uh, in a sense, uh, I agree with you that uh, this kind of Russian narrative yeah. collapsed uh, actually on February 24th, and now with uh, Sweden and Finland striving for NATO membership, it, uh, uh, you know, I think totally collapsed and all these propagators exactly. of uh, the Russian narrative also in the West uh, basically have no longer a backing for uh, this argument. Uh, but uh, Russia's defense minister, Sergei Sho Shoigu, warned uh, that Moscow would be taking adequate uh, countermeasures uh, in response to Finland and Sweden's uh, NATO bid. He also was quoted saying that um, Moscow would respond to these threats by forming, for instance, 12 new units uh, in its Western military district. Um, what do you think would be this kind of countermeasures? What kind of uh, hybrid uh, uh, warfare measures uh, may Finland and to some extent uh, Sweden face in this uh, in the next uh, few months while trying to join the alliance? Well, sure. First of all, I, I wonder if they have uh, 12 divisions around to, to move. I mean, it doesn't exactly look that they have a lot of them, nor are they doing a stellar job in, in, in Ukraine. Uh, second observation, you have to understand that the language coming from Russian authorities will oscillate between aggressive and calm. Uh, so, you know, one day we get, you know, words of aggression, we'll move nuclear arms or, you know, we'll create new divisions or there'll be a surprise or something like that. And the next day they say, well, you know, we're not too concerned. So this is typical, you know, Russian information uh, war. And there'll be a lot of disinformation as well. So what kind of attacks? Uh, we don't expect anything conventional. I, I think, uh, you know, the Russian military is, is too busy uh, on the Ukrainian front and doesn't want Finland, Sweden or NATO uh, involved in this. And, and, you know, so it's, it's sort of self-defense for them not to do anything. 
Um, and, and, but we do expect some hybrid uh, activity, and that means two, two strands probably. One is cyber, the other one is information. So on the cyber side, um, you know, we'll probably see attacks on our information technology or homepages. We saw that when Zelensky was speaking at the Finnish parliament four weeks ago. Uh, the homepage of, of um, the defense ministry and the foreign ministry went down. And uh, we're quite convinced that it wasn't Stockholm doing it. So, uh, and, and, and we're also probably going to see some violation of Finnish airspace, which is a you know, typical Russian method. They do it all the time. Uh, and it's not incompetence. I mean, they do it on purpose. So, so that happens. Then the, 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 then the information part is quite important. So you'll, you'll get three, three forms of disinformation. One is disinformation about Finland and Sweden in Russia. So for instance, you know, Astrid Lindgren, the author of Pippi Longstocking, or Ingvar Kamprad, the founder of IKEA, they are Nazis, you know, this kind of uh, d- disinformation in, 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 in Russia. Secondly, we'll get disinformation about ourselves. Uh, so there'll be a lot of trolling going on. So far, it's been actually quite calm. Usually they target people who are pro-NATO like myself, but I haven't seen much, much, much on that front. And the Russian trolls have actually been, well, I'm not saying pacifistic, but quite passive. Um, and, and, and then thirdly, and this is a more serious disinformation, is, is disinformation about Finnish and Swedish NATO membership in NATO allied countries. Uh, and that's sort of, you know, malleable uh, ground that, that some people who don't understand Finland or Sweden, they might hook on to some disinformation. So this type of stuff we'll be seeing in the next few weeks and months. But, uh, you know, so far, so good and, and quite calm, actually. You also said the enlargement of NATO um, must be approved, of course, by all member states so far, 30 in the number and uh, also ratified by the parliaments. Uh, this could uh, take up to a year uh, usually, but actually uh, the mood is that it will be an accelerated uh, process. Um, to what extent uh, you already said you were rather calm on um, Turkish uh, on the Turkish reaction? Um, would you uh, consider also a similar reaction uh, towards uh, Sweden, uh, Sweden's um, uh, application. Uh, would uh, Turkey be an obstacle uh, basically to NATO membership, given that both countries uh, will seek to join uh, the alliance together? And also, do you anticipate other possible obstacles, for instance, a slow ratification process, given the challenges uh, the European Union members are facing right now with well, the uh, security uh, environment, of course? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, in normal circumstances, you would be probably looking at somewhere between, you know, four months to 12 months for ratification. But given the situation, the ground, I would expect this to go quite fast. Uh, I'd say, you know, max three months. So we are, you know, we're talking August, uh, September. But then, of course, you do have, you know, political hurdles that you have to overcome because of domestic or the other political consideration in some of the member states. Uh, right now, the focus is on Turkey. And, uh, you know, of course, I don't have the latest information because I'm not in government anymore, but I try to le- read the body language and, and see what leaders around uh, the, uh, the NATO table are, are saying and how they're reacting. So, for instance, 
I saw the conversation or the press conference yesterday with Joe Biden and President Sauli Niinistö and Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson. And I'm sure if uh, Joe Biden was uh, unsure about the situation, he wouldn't be saying what he said yesterday. He basically said that he's, he's, he's quite confident that we can get this through. Now, the Finnish president, I think, made a very smart move. He said, we take Turkish security concerns very seriously. And that was a clear message to 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 President Erdogan uh, that you know we'll try to find a solution. And I think President Erdogan, you know, has three basic issues that he wants to deal with. Number one is is the issue of uh, you know Kurds and and PKK and the way in which that sort of terrorist organization is treated in the Nordic countries. Uh, and I guess there the issue is a little bit more, if I may, with Sweden than than with Finland. To be to be absolutely honest about it. Secondly, there's an issue of arms embargo, which was imposed, I think, 2019 or 2020 by by Finland and Sweden on Turkey. I don't recall what it was linked to, perhaps a war in Syria or or whatever, uh, but but something that you know will be part of the conversation. But the third and probably the most important one is is linked to. F-35s or the service of F-16s. So this is an American-Turkish issue because um, Turkey bought some defense missiles uh, from Russia, S-400s, a while back, and that's when the U.S. decided to freeze uh, the F-35s. I also looked at some of the statements coming from the press conference of the foreign minister of of, of the U.S. and the foreign minister of Turkey, and, and there... You know, the language seemed quite sort of, yeah, we're trying to find a solution. Let's take some concrete steps. Just a final point on this. I, I was a young civil servant at the European Council in Helsinki. I was actually a deputy and teacher, which meant that I took the notes. Finland was the country that opened in its presidency the door for Russian accession, uh, sorry, Turkish, uh, Turkish uh, accession negotiations to the EU. I was foreign minister when uh, foreign minister Ahmed Davatoglu and myself established the Friends of Peace Mediation Group uh, in uh, the UN. So Finland and Turkey, we have not had a bad relationship. And in that sense, you know, I expect, I expect, um, you know, Turkey to help us as well. Yes, and I agree with you that probably in the end it will be a kind of a serious conversation between the United States and Turkey, uh, given some of uh, the tensions, uh, as you outlined, with uh, F-35, but also S-400, the Russian air defense system, where I suppose that the Turkish pre- president will try to also... Uh, gain some leverage uh, exactly. and you uh, were also right i just checked on the embargo for our audience that it was in 2019 uh, but uh, obviously it's not uh, personal rather than actually it is also about the most recent developments in the turkish american relationship where as you right rightly pointed out uh, in the end uh, they will certainly i hope agree given the precarious situation yeah. and from a turkish point of view a uh, very strong uh, position in the black sea uh, by russia yeah. is certainly yeah. bad news which is yeah and, and the thing is yeah i mean the, you know finnish and swedish nato membership will strengthen security in the baltic sea region will strengthen security uh, in uh, in uh, in europe and it'll strengthen security in um, uh, for turkey as well Sorry, I got a cramp in my thigh. That's what I put back here. So these things happen. First time it ever happened to me 
in an interview. But you know, there's a first for everything. I had, a, I had a I had a bike and running test this morning, so might be might be after that. I'm just getting home. Sorry about that. Just stretch. Uh, as a former I, I swimmer, did, I, did. I can only I can only I recommend you that as a quite efficient way of <laughs> dealing with it. But okay, uh, let's uh, talk. Uh, let's talk uh, European uh, defense uh, policy. Sure. Now you also obviously have a lot of experience with that. And in March uh, this year, the Council has uh, formally approved the Strategic Compass, our new European yeah. strategic document. In a time at a time when we were witnessing uh, already the return of war in Europe, this compass gives the European Union uh, an ambitious plan of for action, so to say, uh, obviously to strengthen the European Union security and defense policy uh, in the next five uh, to 10 years. What are your personal, anti what is your personal anticipa uh, anticipation for the future of the European Union's and also NATO's common security and defense policy? We are also expecting now a very important summit in June. So what is your uh, anticipation and assessment about the future of uh, the common security and defense policy? And also, of course, European Union-NATO cooperation. Sure. I read two questions into that. First one is the European side and especially the strategic compass. I think it's a really good document, actually. And it was a long time coming. And I may also say that I think Josep Borrell and the whole European External Action Service has done a great job during this crisis and this conflict. We forget things very fast. But remember, it was a bit of a miracle that the letter that the Russians wanted an answer to, to address their security concerns. And Lavrov specifically said, We want the letter to be answered separately by all the 27 EU countries. Boom, Borrell coordinates it and, and gets one, one response. Strategic compass, same thing. You know, it, it's the first time that Europe talks the language of power. And, and we have to understand that in today's world, almost everything can be weaponized. So the things that were supposed to bring us together, they can also drive us apart. Energy, trade and sanctions, technology, information, you know, social media. Um, so, so, you know, these things can be used as instruments of power, even competition policy. And guess what? Europe has all of them, right? A lot of the issues that the European Union has as an exclusive competence in this new sort of geopolitical world, I call it modern geopolitics. Modern geopolitics is not about tanks and arms and guns and soldiers. It's about much more. And Europe has those tools and instruments. And I think that in many ways is about the strategic compass is all about. Then we come to the second point, which is EU and NATO. Well, you know, there's always this talk about, you know, either or, right? And there's this sort of, you know, French concept of strategic autonomy versus, you know, the transatlantic alliance. I'm, of course, simplifying. I've never seen it like that. For me, it's not either or, it's not binary, it's actually both. Uh, and what I think that the Finnish and Swedish NATO membership will do it'll actually strengthen the European pillar in NATO. Because now we have to remember that out of the EU countries, we have everyone except Ireland, uh, Austria, Malta, and Cyprus. I hope I didn't forget someone uh, in NATO. And, and of course, we're integrating one of the biggest standing militaries in Europe, namely Finland, with one of the most sophisticated ones, namely Sweden. And, and with this combination, we should avoid duplication. Now, having said all of that, I still think that it's very important that Europe 
develops its own defense capacity. It doesn't have to be separate from NATO, but there could be a day when, you know, Donald Trump 2.0 comes in into the European Union. And, and, and what, if Donald Trump would say that NATO is brain dead, then we're in trouble. It's okay when the French president says it, but it's not okay when the American president says it. So, you know, it's a careful balance, but let's let's work on a more European NATO. And, you know, what the heck? You never know. Perhaps, uh, you know, uh, all uh, EU states will one day be members of NATO. Perhaps, I say. Yeah, I was afraid that you would uh, name uh, those countries that are, you know, actually out, outside of NATO. <laughs> Being in Austria, we are not even currently having any debate on the implications. Uh, we joined together the European Union in 1995, the three yeah. mutual countries, and now there is not even a debate on our neutrality, the future of neutrality status, and also how Austria will yeah. be a credible security provider in uh, the region and beyond, yeah. uh, given the fact that we I, are now... I, you know... It, it's easy for me because, you know, in the olden days, I couldn't have said this when I was in government, but I'd love to see Austria in NATO. I'd love to see Ireland in NATO. I'd love to see Cyprus and, and Malta in NATO. But of course, I'm not the one who takes the decision. And may I add, I'd love to see Iceland and Norway in the European Union as well. So, uh, you know, I think in today's world, to be very honest, I think it's, it's really difficult to be neutral. You know, I mean, what are you neutral from? And in any case, how do you define neutrality? I mean, that's why I said that Finland dropped the doctrine of neutrality and we just called ourselves a country that does not belong to a military alliance. And I guess it's a fair enough definition. But tell me, can anyone be neutral in this conflict right now? It's very binary. You have to take sides. And, and uh, you know, but, but it's something that Austria needs to think about. And I'll just send my best regards to a very good friend of mine, Alexander Schallenberg, you know, Get a move on it, man. Uh, I can say this because uh, we did the Amsterdam and Nice negotiations together as young civil servants. So, and, and he's one of the rare breeds like me that's been both foreign minister and prime minister, or in his case, chancellor. And he was in Florence just a couple of weeks back. And also I was sitting with him uh, in a public discussion just a few weeks ago where he also said uh, publicly that uh, we actually are also not politically neutral. Austria is yeah. taking sides. Austria is supporting uh, Ukraine, even though it's not delivering weapons. And in a sense, uh, yeah. okay, uh, as you said, uh, in terms of military alliances, joining military alliances, hosting military bases and military troops, yeah. Austria is uh, far away from you know, moving, uh, you know, uh, on this topic, uh, the military uh, neutrality. But uh, when it comes to political neutrality, we ah. have we have cited uh, long ago. And also we are on the list of unfriendly, uh, of the unfriendly yeah. countries. So that says a lot. Now let's yeah. uh, move to the last question. Um, and that is, of course, one um, linked to the to your views on the global order. We are witnessing uh -huh. a rapidly changing global order. Yeah. And uh, that's why I would like to hear your assessment on uh, Europe's role, also relationship, future relationship with China, with the United States, uh, uh, given this uh, global power shifts and sure. their impact on the old continent. Okay. Now, it's a big question, so you probably need to poke me in different directions if I answer too long. Um, as things would have it, we actually published the 11th episode of, of my YouTube series, 
lecture series on on uh, understanding the war and the 11th episode is about the west and the rest so in that sense it's it's a very good good question and the last one that we're going to put out the 12th one uh in this particular series is going to be about the new world disorder now the way in which i i see it is that the first thing that we have to understand is that uh we are too eurocentric in analyzing this war so we're looking at it which is understandable because it's a war that's happening in our borders it's it's a shorter flight to kiev than it is to brussels from helsinki just to you know give you the perspective but but the rest of the world doesn't see the war like we do and and that's understandable because they are further away we took a lot of ple- pleasure in the idea that you know we had 141 votes against russia in the un 35 abstained and four in favor but if we start scraping the surface a little bit we'll understand that the 141 votes were actually scrambled together last minute and it was a soft one for one and then if we look at the abstentions 35 countries yep but over half the world's population including of course india and 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 china and then when we start looking at continents let's look at africa 54 countries you know going to be the most populated continent by the end of the century it says listen we're non-aligned a lot of colonial powers don't come and and and, and lecture us about territorial integrity or, or 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 encroaching on sovereignty uh you know this is your war deal with it because it has implications on us on the prices of food on the prices of energy and the prices of fertilizer then we go to latin america and yeah there a majority of the countries are obviously standing behind zelensky and ukraine but you know you get uh, in brazil former president lula from the left saying this is zelensky's fault you get president uh, bolsonaro saying oh you know this is zelensky's fault so you know not easy you look at reactions in india biggest arms exporter from importer from russia well what are they going to say they're going to be very neutral on this but then we come to china and on china i think you know it's it's quite an uncomfortable situation for xi jinping because he wanted to focus on domestic stuff so he wanted to focus on two things domestically one is zero covid policy which is completely absurd and is going to fail obviously because you can't contain a virus so here's just a hello to all of those that two years ago said oh china is dealing so well with this no they're not they have bad vaccines they have the biggest population in the world and they have a virus that they cannot contain so they're going to need western help to survive this but you know it's a domestic affair then secondly he wanted to focus on the upcoming party congress now uh, he also can't afford putin to lose but you know for him russia is becoming a bit of a vassal state 30 years ago their economy was the same size now china is 10 times bigger so china is going to oscillate between the two but it's going to make sure that it doesn't get secondary sanctions from europe or the world or the us and the reason is very simple business with europe is over 800 billion per annum business with russia is under 80 billion so who do you care more about and of course investment Uh, uh finance banks etc and their link to to you to to the west is more important what it's going to do in russia is what it always does it creates past dependencies or dependency so when european sanctions bite china is going to go in and say well we'll help you out on this don't worry we'll fill the power vacuum uh and uh, fine you know that'll give a bit of a lifeline to putin and and you know but that's what china is going to do But now we come and sorry for the long answer now we come to the sort of big question about the world order my take is is the following 
and this is a simplification. During the Cold War, the world was ideological and bipolar. U.S. and its allies, the Soviet Union and its allies, voluntary or not. You know, it was capitalism, communism. It was freedom, authoritarianism. Cold War ended. You know, NATO won it without firing a shot. Uh, the U.S. won it with firing a few shots, I must admit. Uh, but, but the bottom line also, we believed in the end of history, right? We believe that all 200 nation states in the world, they're going to become, you know, happy, lovey-dovey, peaceful, uh, you know, democracies, believing in social market economy and globalization. Well, this didn't happen. The world was unipolar led by the U.S. But now we live in a multipolar world. And what we need to understand in the West is that there's kind of a choice here. It's about a rules-based world order or a value-based world order. Of course, in an ideal world, it would be rules-based and based on our values. But the whole concept of universal values is a hell of a lot more problematic than we think it is. I mean, I believe in them. I believe in the UN charters. But the rest of the world is looking at it. Not, you know, I'm simplifying. A lot of countries in the rest of the world are still seeing them as innately or inherently Western values. And this is where the problem lies. So I think the future world order will be the following. First of all, there'll be a regionalization of globalization because of the value chain disruptions with Trump, with COVID, and, and now the war. We understand that some of the stuff which is essential for us needs to be produced close by so that we know. Uh, secondly, there'll probably be more regional integration. That's why I call it regional uh, globalization. So the African Union will integrate more closely. The European Union, perhaps the European Union with the United States through TTIP or whatever, will integrate more closely. Asia will integrate uh, more closely. And then we come to the question that what are we going to do in the West? And, and this is a big question. You know, there is this sort of, you know, school of thinking that says, well, you know, we're not going to be able to do trade with people who don't abide by human rights, fundamental rights or liberal democracy. Well, I ask the question, uh, who are we going to trade with then? So what I'm saying is that the, the, the age of Western dominance is, is, is reducing, and that, that's what we'll see. A final point, uh, I don't for one second believe that we're going to go into a new bipolar world with a liberal world order and an authoritarian world order. You know, the US, the European Union, and then China, Russia, it's way too simplistic. You're going to have flexible alliances with different types of groupings, uh, moving around and doing different types of, of cooperation. So I would argue that the new world order will be one where no one will dominate. Uh, and one of my episodes and threads is about the 10 instruments of power. And I think there'll be different countries, different areas, different regions, different institutions that have strengths and weaknesses in all those 10 instruments. Sorry for the long answer. But actually, quite interesting one. So obviously, uh, very fluid uh, regional constellations of uh, yes. powerful, powerful players that don't want to be caught in a binary world between United States and China. Don't want to oscillate to have more options and to trade with the one, but being a strategic partner of the other, for instance, and vice versa, uh, which is uh, which is quite of a quite of a good definition for this transitionary period. And then in the and yeah. following this transitionary period of the international relations, we may end up with Pax Americana 2.0, given the fact that uh, Europe is also becoming uh, the largest uh, combined oil and gas exporter in the world, uh, competing now, meanwhile, with uh, Russia on that matter, which is new. 
It hasn't been the case uh, during the Cold War. And also, mm. we don't know whether China will manage to translate this geoeconomic cloud from the last 30 years in global power projection. So there are a lot of question marks. But we need to do, as Europeans, we need to do our homework uh, anyway and to be also credible security provider uh, next to being uh, an important one of the most significant geoeconomic actors in the world. Would exactly. you agree with that? Okay. <laughs> I do. And I, I think that, you know, as I said earlier, uh, modern geopolitics is going to look very different from what it used to be. And Europe has a lot of strength in that. It's just a question of understanding how to do it. But in order to do this, uh, we will also need to do anything to help Ukraine win the war. Uh, it is very important uh, to lead these discussions with the audience in the West uh, and specifically on the old continent, in the North, in the South, in Central Eastern Europe, and also in, uh, in uh, the core, uh, specifically knowing the current debate in Germany, uh, in France. Uh, and that means that it is important also to understand that from Ukraine's perspective, it's not about a choice between uh, war and peace as some debates are currently uh, taking place in uh, the European capitals, but it's a choice between war and subjugation. Mm. Which exactly. I think, which I think is also important to uh, for the audience to understand that it's not a choice between peace and war, it's a choice between war and subjugation, which is why Ukraine will continue the war. And for Russia, thankfully, the big miscalculations by the Russian president led to now a long war, which uh, we also need to uh, make sure to stop as soon as possible and provide Ukraine with all the required assistance, as you outlined in the conversation so that Ukraine can also win against uh, Russia. Otherwise, we will end up uh, in a situation that will threaten the whole uh, European security architecture. Exactly. I, I so, fully agree. Okay, so you've, uh, if you don't have anything additional to add, I would like to use the opportunity to thank you very much for your insights and your opinions. I know how precious your time is, and I don't want to keep you so long uh, in the podcast. Uh, so follow uh, Mr. Stop on Twitter. He's very active on social media, and also his activities as director of the School of Transnational Governance, where you can also check on the most recent publications, uh, his and the ones of the Institute. Thank you very much for um, being with me and for your um, insights, uh, Professor Stop. Thank you very much, Felina. My pleasure.